but saying systemically we are going to think about human migration as a long-term challenge that the global community is going to have to face, then we should be thinking about how do we best prepare those migrants for success wherever they end up going. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian American Business Council, and I'm joined by the one and only Chris Sands of the Woodrow Wilson Center. Hey, Chris. Hi, Scotty. Glad to be back on Canusa Street with you. Glad to be back on the street with you. And Chris, we've talked to members of Congress a lot lately, and we need to even up the score here and talk to uh, some members of Parliament. We can't just be one-sided on Canusa Street. So I'm excited about the conversation we're going to have today with a real live member of parliament from the west coast of Canada. And why don't I turn it over to you to introduce our very special guest properly. Absolutely, Scotty. This is going to be a great episode. We're going to be talking with member of parliament Taleb Nurmohamed. Uh, Taleb got his start in government serving as a senior federal official from 2002 to 2007, including working in the Privy Council office, uh, which is really the seat of the bureaucracy, the senior civil service, so where the action is, uh, for those of our American listeners who aren't sure. Um, he also has nothing to do with a privy, uh, which we want to make people to know that that's, he wasn't a washroom attendant. He was somebody very important. Uh, <laughs> sorry, Americanism there. Um, and he was, he took the lead in helping to establish a cross-cultural roundtable on security. Uh, during his tenure, he served as a senior advisor to the Honorable Bob Ray, who is Canada's current ambassador to the United Nations and special envoy to Myanmar, and uh, also was a former premier of Ontario and interim leader of the Liberal Party. We, we love Bob Ray. He's, he is a, one of the great Canadians. Um, he also was appointed director of the Secretariat responsible for the review of the Air India bombing, uh, bombing of Air India 182 back in 2005. And some of Americans will remember that because it was quite a, a fraud incident. I think still the worst uh, air disaster in, in Canadian history. Now, moving on from that, he joined the organizing committee for the Vancouver 2010 Olympics and Paralympics uh, Winter Games, uh, serving as vice president of strategy partnerships. And then after the Olympics, he worked in the tech sector, building and leading world-class innovative companies such as Farfetch and, and HomeAway. He currently sits on the Standing Committee on Public Safety and National Security and the Standing Joint Committee for the Scrutiny of Regulations. Taleb is also the chair of the Liberal Pacific Caucus and a member of several interparliamentary associations, including, very important for Canusa Street, the Canada-U.S. Interparliamentary Group and the Canada-Canadian NATO Parliamentary Association. So here's someone who, who knows what's happening and who likes the United States and is engaged on U.S. policy. Uh, it's like you have a house on Canusa Street. So a uh, welcome, Mr. Nur Mohammed. Well, thanks very much. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure to be with both of you and uh, to, to be having this conversation. Well, we're excited to have you. And uh, you do have an impressive background. But the thing that I wanted to start out talking about is something we have in common a little bit, uh, which is the Olympic Games. So when I worked for the mayor of Atlanta in a million years ago in the Centennial Games, um, we worked on the Atlanta Olympics. But then fast forward, you were involved in the 2010 Winter Olympics in Vancouver, and I was actually there. And Chris, we, I think you were there too, weren't you? Yeah. And so that gold medal hockey game, you know, 
it was US versus Canada. It was really close. And in the end, Canada won, which was probably good for peace, order, and good government that day. But can we start with the Olympics and your experiences um, in Vancouver and kind of your observations about Olympics generally? Yeah. So the Vancouver Vancouver Olympics were, of course, um, an interesting experience for a lot of, you know, for a lot of different reasons. The first is that it was the first Olympic Games that was really built on the idea of reconciliation with Indigenous communities, right? Having the four host First Nations as a critical component of the organization, the planning and the economic benefit that the games is going to bring was a huge was was a huge part of the story and a huge part of I think why the games were so successful. The second was you think about the lead up to an Olympic Games, they just don't come out of nowhere. And Scotty, you know this, you don't just wake up one morning and there's a games. There is a year, there's a you know several years long lead up. And of course, we dealt with the 2007-2008 financial crisis right as we were starting to think about the major uh, sort of last sort of last run steps that we were going to have to do in order to put the games right. that caused us to have to think about the financial model of the games, how we were going to bring in additional revenue, how we were going to think about supporting gaps in revenue as a result of think about who our biggest sponsors were banks and GM. Yeah. Think about what was happening to that, those, the, the automotive sector and, and the banks in 2007, 2008. So we had to really get quite creative because we had committed to leaving a legacy, a financial positive financial legacy behind. We had partners that were committed to this. So what we actually were able to do, and I think this was the, I think I had the best job at the Olympics because my job was to figure out how we were going to turn Vancouver and Whistler's Olympics into Canada's games, a regional local activity at its core and turn it into something that the entire country is behind. Now in that there was a financial model that says we're going to find ways for provinces and territories to become part of the story of the games because we realized that you know, by showcasing Canada, we could really make this a very special experience, but we could also leverage um, sponsors, other governments from across the country to be part of this incredible story that we could then make a national one. And so it was a really interesting task, but it was gave me the privilege of traveling literally to every single province and territory and working with levels of government and Canadians and businesses from across the country to say, look, here's a chance for you to be part of what is going to be the best Olympics ever. And I would argue that, you know, we we did a pretty darn good job of of, of making that a reality. And if you look with at- With all due respect to Mitt Romney and the Salt Lake Winter Games. That's that's right. And we had, we listen, scandal free, scandal free and, 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 and well delivered. Um, yeah. But I think the most important thing was you look at some of the, the legacy of how it put Vancouver on the map, what it did in terms of public transportation, what we were able to do in terms of building new housing infrastructure. Um, it was, I think it was a really, really good learning experience. And I think, you know, it, it does, it does beg the question. I mean, the second part of what you asked is, you know, Olympics in general. Mm-hmm. Um, look, these are, these are, cha- it's a challenging sort of thing to, to ask a community or a country to say, build all of this infrastructure for a one-off, right? We spend so much money right. on one-off Olympic games that, you know, you have to ask the question, how do we make sure that whatever we're building has longevity? How do you make sure you're creating, you know, positive legacies, not white elephants? Right. You know, I think we are going to have to at some point enter this conversation of does it make sense for the Olympics to be a 
rotating thing between a set number of cities and, you know, so that there's, you know, there, there is global experience, but there's also, you know, the ability to reuse some of this infrastructure uh, because putting on an Olympics is an expensive proposition. It's a difficult proposition. Um, it is fraught with all kind of uh, challenge and risk. And, and so I think we need to say, how do we, if we're going to keep doing this, how do we do it in a way that is truly sustainable and, and, and economically viable, but also socially viable? Yeah, I think that's you raise important questions and and host cities, you know, cities compete for the honor to host the games. And and once you win, sometimes you say, geez, are we the are we the dog that caught the bus? You know, what are we going to do with it? So it's it's a good point. And what the legacy of the games is, is, is important. Let me let me ask a sort of different but related question before I turn it over to uh, Chris. But, you know, one thing about Olympics in in my observation over the years is is they also re- require a lot of volunteer activities and you get the community involved and volunteerism i think is something that is near and dear to your heart you you know not only covenant house in vancouver and the lionsgate hospital foundation and the confederation center of the arts but you you have a, a distinguished record in your young life so far of volunteerism and, and i think the queen gave you her Diamond Jubilee Medal for volunteers. So can you talk a little bit about the role of volunteers in civil society and and your experience with that? You know, I think there's, and the Olympics was a great sort of examination into the impact that volunteers can have in making something happen and in the relationships that people build among themselves trying to do something good for others. But you see this in civil society organizations, volunteer organizations from the smallest to the largest, and how you ensure that the voluntary sector is vibrant is by making sure you value what it is that the voluntary sector brings that government and the private sector cannot. And so cultivating that and valuing that as something that is essential um, and essentially integrated into the way in which we think about how society functions is really important. Look, creating place for people to come together from different backgrounds and work towards a common goal, to volunteer for a project, to volunteer for, you know, a food bank, to volunteer for whatever, whatever the cause is, is a chance for people to meet one another that they'd never otherwise meet, to kind of help to improve the quality of life of others, to improve a community. And you cannot put, you cannot underestimate nor put a value on um, the health benefits, the mental health benefits, the community benefits, the social benefit that volunteering brings. And I will always say to people, if you have the chance over the course of a period of life to give time to a cause that you care about or you give time to a cause to believe in, that you believe in, you will never be disappointed. You'll never be disappointed because either you will learn something or you may not learn anything, but others will have benefited from you or both, right? You will always, but there will always be some benefit either to yourself or to others. And if you are giving a benefit to others, you will see a benefit regardless of how you see it in your own outlook uh, and your own perspective on the world. So look, I think volunteering is hugely important. I think we live in a world right now where people are so busy and becoming increasingly, um, I don't want to say increasingly selfish, but you know, I think there is, there is a sense of people looking out for me first and then everybody else. But I think what we often forget is by giving of our time, we actually enrich ourselves. Like it's a, it is a absolutely sense that altruism is actually quite selfish, but it does provide such a great value to the community. 
and yourself, right? Like I think it, I think we have to see giving of ourselves is actually of something that benefits broader society, but also us. Well, that's right. And you know, in certain periods in history, there are calls that are overwhelming. So, you know, the great world wars, um, where our grandparents and parents all did something for the cause. And you see it happening in Europe now with, with the struggle in Ukraine. But, you know, the other, the other piece of volunteerism, um, that strikes me is you think about people like president Jimmy Carter, who, if he's going to agree to go to something and he's, you know, he's in hospice now and, and his family are, are very much in everyone's um, in everyone's minds. But when he, if you invite President Carter to anything, to any city, it doesn't matter what it is, he will say yes, if there can also be a component of it where they're building a Habitat for Humanity house. <laughs> and, you know, I remember when, when Governor Bill Clinton was running for president and wanted to have, you know, kiss the ring in Georgia, um, uh, of the former Democratic president and uh, President Carter made him get a hammer and said, you know, I'll meet with you, but you got to help me build this house first. So I, I don't know. I just think there's I, I think you're exactly right, Talib. And, and um, there is something quite meaningful about people getting involved in their community in that way. So anyway, enough of my soapbox, Chris, maybe we maybe we should get to some policy here on Canusa Street. Well. No, I think it's an interesting topic, and I and I want to commend you for it, uh, Talib, because I think a lot of people during the pandemic were working from home, and you know, work can become self-absorbing. I mean, it takes over your whole life, and you realize you're working late, and you're getting up in the morning and doing emails, and so I think one of the other self-help benefits of volunteering is it gets you out of that rat race grind, which you don't do on purpose. You just find that you know work can just take over. And I want to talk to you a little bit about some of your work and, and maybe as a step back um, to mention that, uh, I know this just from your bio, um, that your parents were immigrants to Canada um, from Kenya and Uganda. And immigration has been a big part of the work that you've done. For Americans and Canadians, we're both societies of immigrants. We've had slightly different approaches, but but some of that narrative resonates. Can you talk a little bit about the role that immigration plays in Canada? And for me, just as someone who's been to Vancouver in different eras of my life, and I'm obviously much more ancient than you, I, I've seen multiculturalism transform so many Canadian cities into much more diverse populations that you can just see and feel as soon as you get there. But um, talk a little bit about, about how that looks for you and and maybe what's so Canadian about the approach that Canada takes? So my, you know, my view on immigration and my sort of worldview, I think, is really shaped by the experience that my parents had, right? My parents came to this country with 300 bucks uh, yeah. and skills. Uh, and that's it. They didn't know anybody. They didn't have a whole lot of anything uh, around them that they could depend on. But they had um, but they had a country where they had basically the chance to do whatever it is that they wanted to do. And frankly, a community around them of people that they didn't know who were very, very supportive of the fact and welcomed them, welcomed them to Canada. And so, you know, my, my worldview is shaped by the fact that my parents were able to come here with nothing and see their son become a member of parliament mm -hmm. and, and to do it in sort of one generation. And the reason that I talk about this is because the opportunities that Canada afforded my parents and me allowed me to be where I am today. And so I think when we think about the idea of immigration, 
you know, often people see people who are coming as migrants or as refugees. And my parents left very difficult circumstances in East Africa, right? Idi Amin had done what he did in Uganda. There were some very difficult kind of conversations happening in families about where we were all going to land. And, you know, we often see the notion of immigration or bringing refugees to a country as us doing people a favor. Mm -hmm. I think what we often forget is that we are doing, the greatest benefit is actually to us. Because you think about where Canada and the United States and other Western countries are, is we have aging populations. We have large numbers of jobs that in Canada, Canadians don't necessarily want to do or can't do. Uh, we have a gap in terms of how we fund into our social social programs that comes as a result of aging populations. And the best way to replenish that is immigration. But the other advantage of immigration is think about the global capacity that you have to transact. Canadians, because we have really embraced the idea of multiculturalism, mm -hmm. are able to and feel proud to maintain uh, languages from countries of origin, maintain networks with countries of origin without feeling like they're being disloyal Canadians, and then are able to use that and parlay that into economic strength in terms of trade, in terms of people-to-people -people relations, in terms, in terms of global engagement. And the ease with which I think people see difference in Canada, whether it is cultural, whether it is religious, is a direct result, I think, of us saying to people, we ascribe to a set of shared values as Canadians when we come here, but we keep our identities because we take those identities as something that makes the broader piece, the whole piece richer. And so I look at immigration in that context and in that vein as, had it not been for Canada having an immigration policy that valued that, my parents wouldn't have ended up here. But had my country not taken the position that what I bring here is actually valuable, or my family, not me, I was born here, but my parents, what they brought here in terms of culture, in terms of language, in terms of religion, if they didn't say that is valuable, then I would have lost a massive piece of my identity. But I would have also lost the ability to communicate in languages with people in other parts of the world. And so I think we need to start, broadly speaking, realize that in the in the West, particularly, we actually need immigration to maintain these incredible democratic open societies that we have created, because that is where the future of our population growth is actually going to come from. And on that, um, I know that Canada set relatively ambitious targets over the years, usually receiving fewer immigrants than you were prepared to accept, um, you know, just depending on the global flows. But uh, if I'm not mistaken, the last target announcement was that by 2025, you'd be looking to have half a million new Canadians uh, in every year. And for a population that's uh, 38 million now, that, that as a percentage uh, wave is quite significant. Do you think, uh, how, what do you think about those targets? And do you think Canada may be able to reach those targets a bit better than they have in the past? Well, the, the first thing I would say is that the the thing that we have going for us um as opposed to other countries that is that there is universal support across political parties for immigration um everyone uh yeah you know, major parties i should say we have, we have a few you know we have fringe folks that that think that immigration is bad but you know whether it's one person or 100,000 people they're going to have that point of view but it, the majority of political parties in this country all the major all the major political parties have the view that immigration is actually a necessary uh component of, of of the future of Canada. And so 
you know, then the question is, how do you meet the target? How do you make sure you can meet the target? We've been pretty successful thus far in getting close. I think the challenge is going to be to make sure that the processes that we put into place, and we've done a lot to modernize the immigration system. We're doing a lot to modernize how we actually get to the the, the goals. Um, it's something that we're very intentional about. You know, historically, immigration systems have been built on the idea of saying no to people, right? Whether it's Canada or other places. I mean, immigration right. systems built on the idea of keeping people out, not keeping, even in countries where we say we welcome immigration, we want immigrants, mm-hmm. the systems are are designed to preclude that. And so I think the change in mindset in saying, and the prime minister's talked a lot about this, and the minister of immigration has talked a lot about this, the change in mindset to saying, how do we make it possible for people to actually come is a very different, uh, an intentional shift that does take some time. But I think it's the type of intentional shift that sets you up well for the future, right? So, you know, whether it's 465 this year or, or half a million in 2025, making sure that we get there in a way that it keeps the country safe. Like security is very, very important. We have to make sure we meet our security criteria. We have to make sure the people are coming, you know, and presenting their truest selves when they arrive. Uh, all of these are very important things, but that we do it in a way that there's not the natural default is one to say, how do we find a way for this to work? I think it's really important. And I think that's well, how you get there. Yeah. And if I could just jump in, I mean, I think there's also, uh, you know, so I run a business council, right? And we, there is an economic mandate that Canada is relatively better positioned to deal with than the United States because of what you're saying, Talib. Canada, broadly speaking, um, thinks that trade is a good thing, thinks that con- connections with the world is a good thing, and thinks that immigration is a good thing. And is and Canada is, you know, works more at opening up to immigration, but it's not, um, it's not perfect. And, you, you know, we just had a roundtable in Denver a couple of weeks ago uh, on critical minerals and rare earths. And, you know, this is another big subject between Canada and the United States. Who's going to do all of the processing, the developing and the recycling? Um, are we going to continue to be dependent on China for that? We, North America, are we going to do some of it ourselves? So Canada is well positioned for that. But what shocked me or surprised me in our conversation is all of the businesses around the table said, even if we get the permitting expedited, which is hard, even if we get the capital investment, which is a lot, um, we don't have the workforce. And we could hire every engineer coming out of every engineering school in North America and still for one project and still not have uh, an equivalent number of engineers as our competitor like China would crank out of one university. So um, in terms of you know, accelerating it. Do you do you think there is a hope um, for an economic push? Because we've got a our yeah. our economy is a bit fragile, and the U.S. is fraught politically. But Canada maybe is in a relatively better position to go f- bigger, faster, further, and benefit the Canadian economy. Yeah, absolutely. Look, sixty percent of our admissions uh, in, are going to be in the economic class by twenty twenty five. Right. So that means that looking at the the specific areas in which we need people and saying, look, we want to make sure we are able to draw talent in those areas. You know, we've expanded how we think about that, uh, you know, as, as a result of where the world is going. So you think about STEM, you think about building trades, manufacturing, healthcare, the areas where we know we need people. We are, there is a global... Um, there is a global competition for talent right now. That's right. At all when I talk about talent, you're not talking about just PhDs and doctors. You're talking about all the way along the spectrum. And I think what 
positions as well. One is the recognition that the system needs to be adaptive to that. And we have industry saying to us, bring more people, please. We really need, you know, we need these workers, as you've heard. Um, but you bring to that the ability of integration into the system, into the country. And when I talk about integration, I'm not talking about disappearing. I'm talking about integrating into local communities, being able to find communities of similar interest, um, cultural communities, but also being part of the broader environment. So I think that's that is the I, I think the advantage that Canada has right now, and I think being able to lean into it is very very important. But you're right, there is. Um, you know, the demand right now in Canada outstrips our ability to access supply in people in terms of bringing people. Yeah. And I that's think right. that's, I mean, it's a good problem to have, honestly. It's a good problem to have, but it's a problem that we do need but to it's solve. It's a problem nonetheless. That's right. Well, um, so we're going to take a little break here. And when we get back, when we come back, um, I think we'd like to pivot from talking about the e economic mandate um, of immigration and transition to a discussion about some of the more humanitarian elements of not only immigration and refugees, but other uh, humanitarian crisis disasters around the world. So let's take a break. The Wilson Center's Canada Institute is a proud co-producer of the Canusa Street Podcast. For more insights and analysis from the world's leading think tank on Canada-U.S. relations, please visit us on the web at www.wilsoncenter.org. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everyone. Um, I'm Chris Sands. I'm here with Scotty Greenwood, and we are talking with the MP for Vancouver Granville, Taleb Nurmohamed. And uh, Taleb, thank you very much for being with us. I, I saw a statistic the other day from the UN High Commission on uh, Refugees, which estimated that in 2023, we could see 117 million people who are displaced forcibly or stateless in the world. And we've never seen that. I mean, we, we've never seen numbers on this scale, obviously multiples of the Canadian population. And that's driven by Syria, Ukraine, and also Venezuela. But there are so many situations in which people are fleeing. And I understood our earlier conversation, we were talking about the economic benefits, the growth benefits, people who come with skills. But Canada's also been a very compassionate recipient or welcoming place for refugees, as relatively few countries are, and the U.S. does take them as well. But can you talk a little bit about, about refugees and, and where Canada uh, is seeing its refugee program going? And, and if I could push you a little bit, um, just why has Canada become so open and, and willing to embrace people who are, in, uh, who are refugees and just looking for a safe harbor in the world? Well, first of all, because it's the right thing to do. I think it's really important. Um, to remember that at the end of the day, people who are looking for a better life deserve an opportunity. And you look at the number of people who have come to this country and the United States under those circumstances and who have become leaders, who have become leaders in different fields of endeavor, leaders in their communities. Um, you know, it's clear evidence that when you give people an opportunity to, to succeed, you give people that chance that they need to escape from hardship that they will thrive and they will thrive um, very quickly, actually. Mm -hmm. And I think this is where, this is this is the lesson, I think a little bit that, that, that Canada has, has benefited from. And, you know, you think about what is happening and you didn't mention Afghanistan in your list of places where we're seeing massive, you know, Absolutely. massive need, right? It is, 
uh, we are going to have to accept um, that whether it is political upheaval and unrest, whether it is climate change, we are going to have to get ready to bring people um, here and into other countries around the world um, so that they can have a basic quality of life. And, you know, the thing that I have that I, I think is very important is that we set people who come to Canada up uh, so who said we that we set up people who are coming to Canada for success, like they are ready to hit the ground as much as possible so that they feel that as soon as they arrive, that they are home. And, you know, I'll share with you what I a little bit of what I've been doing. I've been working with a group of Afghan refugees that are in Turkey that have been stuck in Turkey. And the challenge is, of course, the Turkish government does everything they can. Turkish government is hosting millions of refugees from from Syria and Afghanistan and now Iran and other places. Um with you know with with very very difficult economic circumstances there one of the things that does happen when you're a refugee is a very technical point but people who come from the east to turkey are not considered unhcr protected refugees so they don't get a refugee status determination card which makes it hard for countries that are part of the convention like canada to accept them as refugees so what i've been doing and others you know as volunteers are doing is helping to train Afghan refugees that are in Turkey right now to give them job skills that they can use economic pathways to come to Canada. But as we change refugee policy, as we as we manage through this issue, those people, even if they come as refugees, are able to land in this country and hit the ground running with jobs in areas where we know we have need. And so I think this is an important opportunity as we think about this 117 million plus people that are going to be displaced. How do we actually invest into preemptively preparing people for their journeys? Refugees sitting in refugee camps is not good for them. It's not good for the countries in which they sit, and it's not good for the countries where they go. So if we find a way to say, look, there is actually strong economic benefit for us as countries where we know we are going to be bringing people, we know we're going to be doing this, while we go through processing, while we go through all of the, the administrative tasks and all of that stuff, spend time investing in their education, investing in giving them what they're going to need around language, around skills, around economic employability, around employment skills, so that when they arrive in Canada or the United States or wherever, they find their feet, they find a sense of purpose right away, they can support their families right away, and by extension, they enable the government to help others. So uh, to my mind, this is a really important kind of conversation we need to start having because we have to accept migration as a reality. We have to accept that this is going to be part of how we see the future. And if we move it, if we move away from crisis to crisis, but saying systemically we are going to think about migration, human migration, as a long-term challenge that the global community is going to have to face, then we should be thinking about how do we best prepare those migrants for success wherever they end up going. And that, I think, creates a tremendous amount of um, certainty, not just for them, but also for countries where they're going to settle. And I want to pick up on, on just one thing there, kind of linking our earlier discussion with the discussion of refugees. Now, Canada and the United States are both signatories to the Global Compact on Migration. And this is a little bit of boring history, but I I'm a professor, so I'm always lecturing people, even if they don't ask or pay tuition. Um, but but we, for a long time, had the UN uh, Convention on Refugees that said 
The best thing for refugees is that they stay as close to their origin country as possible and that the frontline states who bear the burden, whether it's Lebanon and Jordan in the case of the Palestinians or what have you, should receive assistance from the rest of the world to help them to provide a home, uh, usually in a refugee camp or so on. And But that was the idea. And the Global Compact changes the equation and says there there is a false moral distinction between economic migrants and, and refugees, and they're just people looking for a place. And we shouldn't, particularly with the internet and easy transportation, assume that the best place for them is in a frontline state. But that is causing a real scrambling of the way in which Western countries, uh, really all countries, respond to refugee crises. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and how that's factored into how Canada is preparing? Well, I can share with you the example, I think a very good example, um, is the example of Afghans who fled Afghanistan um, in the early 2000s, in Taliban 1, or 90s in Taliban 1, and then the war. They came to Canada with the idea that they were going to get skilled up, get an education, and the idea was that they were going to go back and rebuild their country, right? So sending them to frontline states, many of them had come through Pakistan or India and ended up in Canada, very intentionally with the idea that Canada would help prepare them to build civil society organizations, institutions when they went back. Many of them said, you know, we don't see a situation, everyone, we're going to stay in Canada, great. But many of them did go back. Many of them did go back. And then when Taliban 2 happened, everybody left. You know, to say to people, we're going to keep you close by so that at some point we can send you back with no certainty as to how long you're going to be where you are is, in my view, my point of view of one, is actually inhuman. Because yeah. you're saying to people, we are going to ask you to exist in limbo until the rest of the world sorts out or doesn't sort out what is happening in your home country so that you may or may not be able to return safely. I mean, there is something fundamentally wrong when we're saying to people, we're going to keep you in pens close to the close to the front line so that we can ship you back. Yeah. I, should, yeah, I think that's right. You know, what we, what we need to re recognize is that conflicts are much longer in nature now. They are very, very different than point of time conflicts and skirmishes. They take generations. I mean, look look at the 90, 90, 1991 Iraq War and what that triggered through where we are today. And you ask yourself, at what point would we feel comfortable sending people back into those environments? And you look along history over the last 30 years. And the question is, geez, I'm not sure there's a good point at which we would have felt that we could have slept at night saying it was the right decision for people. So... We have to accept, and especially when it comes to climate refugees, right? When we when we look, th there are people who can never go back to where they came from because they're where they came from may not exist, right. right? So if we change the mindset and start to think about this in a way that says, look, there are going to be people that want to go back. There are always going to be want, want people who want to go back to to the countries from which they were displaced, and that should be something that we encourage, we facilitate, we help. But there are going to be people that say, look, I am not okay living in a refugee camp for 5, 10, 15, 20 years with no certainty for my children, no capacity to earn a living, no capacity to use my brain, to build new things, or to innovate. That's not for me. And I think we have to be able to say to those people, there are pathways to citizenship, not just citizenship in other countries where they can help to build themselves and their families. They may be the greatest advocates for rebuilding their home countries 20, 30, 50 years from now, but that should be for them to decide. 
That's that's exactly right. Uh, you can't you cannot design policy on a global scale that will be appropriate for every individual family circumstance from now until it eternity. So I, I agree with you. Well, we're, you've been so generous. This is such a rich conversation. We're coming to the end. But I want to I want to ask one last question, if I could, that that brings us back to the very beginning when Chris was introducing you. And um, it, it is this you your doctoral advisor, you can correct me, but I read that your doctoral advisor when you were at Princeton was the Nobel laureate, famous author, Toni Morrison. I don't know if she was a Nobel laureate when when you were together at Princeton, but I just want to ask you, um, did you know you were in the presence of greatness when you were with her? Like, what what is your what is your view on, on all of that? What was it then at the time and subsequently? Because certainly well after that, President Obama has awarded her the Presidential Medal of Freedom. We, you know, the story on Toni Morrison is is amazing, but you actually you know, you studied with her. So what was that like? So Professor Morrison was my junior paper advisor as a junior. Oh, okay. And then my thesis oh. advisor as a senior. Okay. Um, and I got to know her through that extremely well. You know, um, we took a, how I got to know her is, you know, junior year, took a sophomore year, actually took a course with her called Studies in American Africanism. And it was about, you know, we looked at African-American literature and she chose who she wanted in her class. There's 12 of us. And um, we convinced you her. You had to apply? You had to apply. Yeah. And then the next year, we convinced her. I, I was sent in by some of my friends uh, to convince her to teach a course on her own writing. So it was called On Morrison. And we got her to teach a course about her own writing. Smart. Yeah. I was, I consider myself very lucky because people will often look at her as a great writer. They look at her in, in a variety of different, a thought leader. I mean, for me, she was a teacher, but what she taught me was how to write. And um, I remember Time Magazine did a cover page on her in 1997, I think. She was on the cover of Time and it talked about her as an author. And I remember writing a letter to the editor saying, you guys have missed a major component of her and it's that she is a teacher. And that was to her core who she was. And I remember I would go and sit in her office. There was a rocking chair in her office on the right side of Dickinson Hall. And I would sit in that chair and we would talk about all kinds of things. And um, I had a thesis topic that she knew, or my junior paper topic, she didn't know very much about, but she was really interested in it. And she said, look, I want to advise you. And we used to exchange letters um, for, for some time after graduation. Oh, but wow. the deal with her is you hand wrote your letters. And yeah. so I have this beautiful set of letters that Toni Morrison wrote me in her own hand that, you know, when I found out she had passed, I mean, I sat and I read that stack of letters and I cried because, yeah. you know, this was someone that for me personally had made a huge difference in my own development as a human being. But we never really, I think, I think we are really starting now to appreciate her genius. She won a Nobel. She won a Pulitzer. You know, she was... She was so good at what she did at her craft. But I think we are only now beginning to just scratch the surface of just how remarkable some of the things that she was saying were. I mean, she talked in the 90s. I mean, they were talking back to in the 90s. She was talking in the 90s about what could happen in terms of demagoguery, in terms of division, in terms of sort of the undermining of the political structures of the United States, if somebody who sought to sow division among people were to become president. And it was, you know, yeah. 20 years later, you know, or 
you know, 20 plus years later, thinking about the things that she was saying then about the fabric of society uh, is something that I still think a lot about. And it was interesting that we were having, and I know we've gone a lot, we've gone over, but I, I'll take a minute and I'll wrap with this. We were having conversations about race in the 90s in her classroom that I would submit, sadly, are not conversations that people would have today because I don't necessarily think that in some environments the climate has improved in the way that we were hopeful about uh, in the 90s. Um, and I think that is something that, you know, should give us all pause. If we've talked about building more open, you know, more just societies for people, how do we make sure that when it comes to people who are different, when it comes to our most vulnerable in society, how do we make sure that they are and that they remain part of the conversation around progress? And how do we make sure that we're not leaving those people behind as we think about where Canada, where the U.S., where the world is going? Because if we do, we actually lose a tremendous amount of richness from what we can develop. But more importantly, we create those divisions in society that I think often, uh, if we don't recognize, can become irreparable. So I'm very hopeful. I'm very hopeful that we can actually move forward in a way that if we think about things that we've talked about today, where we think about bringing people together from around the world to build better societies, that we can actually do that. But I think we have to be conscious. We have to be conscious of the privilege that we have sometimes. And I think we have to be conscious of the opportunity that that allow that that uh, that others should be afforded in order to be able to achieve the greatest amount of success, whether you are an indigenous person in Canada, whether you're a refugee, whether you're someone who's just arriving in this country for the first time, you know, we have to allow people the opportunity to be their best selves. And that's the one thing that I remember from Professor Morris and that will always stay with me, give people the opportunity to be their best self. I love that. And, you know, I have to say, well, two thoughts, two reactions to that. One is, I think you're going to have to publish a book about your dialogue with her at some point, or maybe get your old classmates together who wrote back and forth with her. I think that would be amazing. I know you have nothing else to do. So if you could just get right on that, that'd be great. <laughs> um, the other thing, and Chris, you'll hopefully forgive me for the plug, but, you know, my organization has a series. We have lots of different programs, public-private dialogues, but one of the ones that we have is Corporate Action on Social Justice. And we started it after George Floyd was killed. But the one we have coming up that we're putting together is on, for lack of a better way to say it, the woke versus anti-woke backlash that the corporate world is experiencing now. And um, so I'll just put in a little plug for that. Stay tuned because... Um, depending on who's talking and who's listening, when you hear inclusion, it's a positive or it's woke capitalism and it's a negative. And there are, you know, states in the United States that are legislating against things like that. So that's a that's a pretty big subject. And and I agree with you, Talib. I think the conversation has devolved since the 90s from the way we thought it would go. But you know what? That's um, human beings are complicated. <laughs> And life is hard. So anyway, I think these are all worthy topics. So with that, let me just say on behalf of Chris and me, thank you so much for joining us. It's it's a pleasure to meet you. Um, thank you. know, we're happy to talk to you. We'd love to have you back. Um, and this, this has been really interesting. Well, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. It's been great having you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks for the work you're doing. 
Well, Chris, I think we covered the watershed there in many ways, or maybe the Pacific watershed, since we have a member from Vancouver Granville. But uh, I enjoyed I enjoyed the conversation. Well, you know, at its root, it is about the journeys that people take in their lives that often cross borders. And there's so many Canadian American stories that way. That's that notion of a society of immigrants that's very important in U.S. identity is also important in Canadian identity. And yet it's slightly different. It, it's like that difference in an accent. Sometimes the emphasis is different. Sometimes the, the way of thinking is different. And it's just a wonderful topic and a wonderful uh, guest to kind of help us explore the those two pathways, the way we think about ourselves and the way we think about those people who come to our societies. Still, both Canada and the United States, real, real beacons uh, that draw people from, and talent from all over the world, including also refugees who are looking for safe harbor. The fact that we still represent that at our best, I think is an important part of our identity and marks us out from the rest of the world. Well, that's right. Safe Harbor. And also, Chris, let us not forget people travel for education. And so here we have a Canadian member of parliament who traveled to the U.S. and the U.K. for an education. Um, You have do this for a living and you host international students and you speak internationally um, on really important topics. So I think um, I, I think it's good to pause and reflect on how really fortunate we are that people want to come to Canada and the United States, not just for safe haven, which is obviously first and foremost, but also for things, economic opportunity and, you know, maybe an education. So that's always good, too. Education is a great magnet. And in fact, our uh, our our producer, Xavi Delgado, is a Canadian who came to study in the United States. Otherwise, I wouldn't have him as a colleague. So uh, great things can happen. Well, that's when, right. Uh, and, when people travel. And it goes both ways. My uh, niece and nephew, Seamus and Lily, are both uh, in Vermont and they're applying to schools in Quebec and Ontario. So uh, you can get a, you can get a great uh, a great degree on either side of Canusa Street, although it's cheaper on the northern side. <laughs> yes. Don't tell Zavi, though. Right. <laughs> All right. Good to see you, my friend. Nice to see you. Thanks very much. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.